Ephesians chapter six, beginning in verse one, we read, children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and you may have a long life in the land. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. In 1990, when thousands of American parents were asked to select five valuable characteristics that children can be encouraged to learn at home, only 39% put obedience on the list. And if you think that's bad, by 2017, that number has fallen to 21%. Among 24 countries, from us to China to Australia, Iran, Brazil, all sorts of places in between, the United States ranks dead last in valuing good manners in children. Just 28% of Americans say not being selfish is an important quality in their kids, and only 32% said that religious faith matters. That is the latest finding from the World Values Society, an organization that has surveyed perspectives across 120 countries for the last 40 years. Every five years, they have a new wave. And so uh, they'll have, we were on wave six last, and so wave seven, I think, is coming up. These data points were from a report titled Parenting Priorities, International Attitudes Toward Raising Children. Seven out of 10 parents don't think it matters if a kid is unselfish in America. Six out of 10 don't think obedience matters. Seven out of 10 don't think religious faith matters. And you know what? It shows. So, (laughs) but what is God's priority uh, for parenting? What's on his priority list for children and parents? He definitely has an opinion. Much more, he has a path for his people. That's what Paul is going to teach us about tonight as we begin the final chapter of Ephesians. Now remember, Paul has been explaining how we as Christians put salvation into practice with all of its grace and all of its power and all that uh, the Lord has provided for us. How do we practice it? How do we work it out? How do we walk worthy of this calling that we've received as disciples of Jesus Christ? How can the church function in power and vitality in the world the Lord has placed us in? Paul's talked already about how we should think about things in life and how we should interact with unbelievers around us and, uh, and talked about the, that most important relationship in most lives, husbands and wives, how we should relate to our spouses. Now he looks to that second most uh, significant life relationship, parents and children. And once again, Paul's instructions would be very countercultural, but would be rooted in eternal truth and world-changing grace. So let's look at verse one. It says, children, obey your parents in the Lord because this is right. Paul does a few interesting linguistic things in these four verses. The first is that he directly addresses the children. He doesn't talk to mom and dad about them first. It's not, uh, you know, it's not a, a, an instruction to the instructors first. He talks right to the kids. And, and this would have been an unusual thing to do at the time, culturally speaking. But once again, we see that God values every individual equally. We saw last time, women and men are totally equal in worth to God. 
And here, Paul assumes uh, that there would be children listening and that they were capable of taking steps of their own in their walk with the Lord. Of course, children don't usually have the strength or the wisdom that an adult believer should have. That's okay. Uh, but, But what we learn here and all throughout the Bible is that God wants to speak to our kids. He wants to interact with them. He wants to receive worship from them. He wants to reveal himself to them in special ways. He wants to have a a personal relationship with them from the earliest age possible. We shouldn't allow ourselves to ever slip into a mindset that kids can't handle spiritual things or that spirituality or Christianity or or faith is for later in life. Uh, Sort of a mentality that says, hey, church doesn't matter to kids, they can't understand it, so just give them a coloring book when they come on Sunday and hope one day when they're older they'll get excited about the Lord. Instead, consider Samuel, consider David, consider Naaman's servant girl, or Mary, the mother of Jesus, consider Miriam, consider Josiah, consider the boy with his simple lunch of five barley loaves and two fish. Uh, The Bible consistently reveals that God loves to interact with young people, sometimes very young people, and he loves to reveal himself to them and to use them in all sorts of meaningful ways. They have a place in his unfolding work, and so we want to notice that, and we want to take that seriously as parents. Now, Paul speaks directly to the children in the Ephesian church here, and he says, listen, obey your parents in the Lord. That doesn't mean that they were to only obey their parents if their parents were Christians. It's the, in the Lord, it doesn't refer to the word parents, it refers to obey. It says, obey in the Lord, obey your parents. And like husbands and like wives, we saw last time, they were to obey the Lord whether or not the other party was a Christian. And so kids are to obey their parents regardless of whether or not they were believers. And as we said last time, when we were looking at the relationship between husbands and wives, where Paul also had commands for each of those individuals, that might have been a pretty hard ask. And yet, this is the command that they were given. Obey is an active word. It includes conscious listening, linguists will tell us. In another verse, this word refers to answering a knock at the door. And so it's a call to willful action, to paying attention, listening, and acting on what you're hearing. Like their parents, kids are free moral agents. And the Lord desires that they come under his proper design for the family. And so it's not just about doing what they're told. It starts with the tilt of the heart. That's really what the Lord is after, whether you're a child or a parent, a husband or a wife, right? The Lord's really after our hearts. That's what he wants most of all. And of course, that's because from the heart flows attitude and words and behaviors and things like that. But it's not just that God wants well-behaved kids. He wants kids who incline their heart toward him. And as we've pointed out with some of these examples, we know that kids can do that. And so he wants children to come under the proper design for the family. Does the child believe that God can be trusted and therefore his plan can be trusted? Do kids believe that the Lord has a plan that they can participate in? Um, You know, 
as Paul speaks directly to them, he, you know, he is in a sense saying, hey, you know, I'm saying all this stuff and it probably seems like I'm mostly talking to mom and dad or talking to the adults in the room, but you, you have a part too, young people, children. You, the Lord's not just having you brought along as baggage. He wants to, you to be an active participant from the earliest possible age because he loves you individually and he cares about you and he wants to reveal himself to you. You're a person just like your mom or dad is a person. And so Paul says here that kids obeying their parents is right. The term means righteous or being in accordance with God's compelling standards. And so uh, what a great thing to recognize that God, uh, children can do righteousness by obeying their parents. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that kids have to obey a sinful command, right? If they have an unbelieving parent that tells them to do something wrong, well, God says, I have to obey in order to be righteous, so I guess I have to do that. Of course not. They don't have to obey a command to sin or to do something morally wrong. But generally speaking, Paul's saying, hey, what the Lord wants is for you to recognize the authority that God has placed over you in, in the position of your parents, and I want you to listen to them and willfully choose to trust me that this arrangement is a good thing and obey what they're saying. And so for their own good and for the good of society at large, children should obey their parents. You see, disobedience to parents is, we're told, a, a, a significant contributor to the breakdown of a human society. It seems crazy. We're like, no, not really, but the Bible says so in more than one place. Very specifically, Romans 1 tells us that. Paul lists disobedience to parents alongside all sorts of other sinful activities that lead to the destruction of human societies. You know, that famous passage in Roman, Romans 1, if you're familiar with it, where Paul says, hey, here's what's going on in the world. Uh, God wants to save people, but instead people love their sin, and here's the things they do. And so God says, okay, I'm going to give you over to your sin, and it's going to lead to your downfall and your destruction, but I, I'm not going to force you. So if that's what you want, then that's what you're going to have. And as he's listing all these things, shocking things, things like murder, people killing each other, Paul also says, also disobedience to parents. And you're like, whoa, that escalated quickly, right? And so uh, it contributes to the breakdown of society. And so when we live in a society where seven out of 10 parents say we don't care if kids obey or not, uh, that's a, that is a bad, bad trend. Meanwhile, the Bible explains that righteousness exalts a nation. And so here we're seeing that Young people, children can contribute meaningfully to the benefit of human societies. How? By walking with the Lord. And as they walk with the Lord, he says, okay, part of what you're gonna do in your walk, part of you walking worthy, kids, is obeying your parents. And as you do that, you are doing righteousness. And that will flow out to your community and to your neighborhood and and in the aggregate, as a sense, it flows out to your society at large. You know, sometimes people today say, oh, I don't want to bring kids into this world because it's so bad. How could you bring children into such a bad world? Uh, it's obviously the wrong perspective and a dumb thing to say. Uh, you know, people live through the dark ages after all. But, but the fact of the matter is we need to have a completely different perspective on that kind of attitude as Christians. God says that godly families make the world a better place. Godly children 
advance civilization in, in the right ways, right? And so, um, yeah, we wanna bring kids into the world. We wanna bring godly kids into the world and have godly families that are contributing to the righteousness of our community and our society and, uh, and to the work of God's kingdom. So yeah, that's a great thing to do. Verse two says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and you may have a long life in the land. Frank Thielman points out that Ephesians was written in a time when 40 to 50% of kids did not live to see their 10th birthday. Even today, many Christian children have their lives cut short by sickness or accident or violence. So how can Paul make this promise of long life? Especially, you know, we as, as evangelical Christians, we say we understand that God made certain physical promises to the nation of Israel uh, that, that he said, listen, if you will obey me, if you will walk with me, if you'll do what I'm asking you to do, you're gonna go in the land, it's gonna be flowing with milk and honey, you're not gonna have miscarriages, no one's gonna get sick, you're gonna have victory everywhere. He gave them a lot of physical promises. And we understand that now in, under the new covenant, uh, we don't have those physical promises. We have every blessing in spiritual places, right? And we've been talking about that since the beginning of our studies in Ephesians. So, but, but what's Paul saying here? How can he make this uh, promise that doesn't seem to actually be true in our experience? Well, it's not an individual promise to every believer. It is a general principle that going God's way leads to lifely outcomes, uh, it leads to the benefit of a life, benefit of a family, benefit of a, a community of believers, benefit of community as a whole, generally speaking. Of course, there are some practical real life advantages to uh, you know, children obeying their parents. In many cases, a child's life is literally saved when they obey the commands of their parents. Stop, most of all, right? How many times, if you, if you have been a parent, I mean, if, if you, you don't want to dwell on it too much, but how many times has saying stop actually saved your kid from being maimed? A lot, right? If you think about it, if you think about all of the pools or all of the dogs that aren't on leashes or all of the, you know, balls going out into the street and things like that. And so, you know, there is a practical side to this that, yeah, obeying my parents actually does save my life sometimes. And then those of you who have raised kids all the way know that when you give them godly advice, that can extrapolate out to, to really saving your kid's life in a long-term sense, right? Things like, hey, don't throw your life away with these behaviors or these choices. Instead, go this way, right? So there are practical applications of this general uh, principle. Um, but also, we know that life is literally saved ultimately when we're rewarded with everlasting life in the kingdom, right? So in the end, God's children, God's people, we are going to, to have long life in the land of eternity. We are, all is going to go well with us and the Lord will fulfill that promise. And we think, well, that's not the same as him fulfilling it here and now. Yeah, that's true. It's much better than him just fulfilling it here and now. I would rather, if you're asking me, would I rather have the, that fulfillment just in the here and now or would I rather have it for eternity? Obviously, we want it for eternity. And so we understand this promise in a generalized sense. But there are a couple of important principles for us to consider here. The first is that God's desire for your life 
really is that it might go well with you. Now, interestingly, Bible dictionaries will tell you that the phrase used here, it might go well with you, means to come into being, right? So we could read this, uh, you know, honor your father and mother so that it will come into being, right? Well, what's gonna come into being? Well, God has all sorts of good plans for you. Many, many good plans for you, all good things for you, promises that he's made to you that he's going to bring into being. The Lord really does have our best interests in mind. We might not agree with every plan of his or the things that he allows in our lives, but we know it to be true that his care for us is unwavering, his wisdom cannot be beat, and the work he began, he is going to accomplish in his people. And so he's, it's going to come into being. And what's going to come into being is God's well-wished will in our lives that he is going to do. Why did God ask the Israelites to obey his commands back when he set them free? What was his purpose in bringing them out of slavery from Egypt to become a new nation? You know, if we start asking those questions, why did God do that? We see what's well, because well, he loved them and he wanted to do great things in and through them. And he wanted to show the world how good and kind and loving and powerful he is by using this special nation as an example. Then and now, the Lord's desire is to accomplish good things for his people. And if we're willing to trust him and walk his line, then life more abundantly will be the result. And a second important principle here is how Paul directed our attention back to the Old Testament. Now, an attentive listener in, listener in Ephesus might have raised their hand and said, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. A few paragraphs ago, Paul said, Jesus made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so why do the Ten Commandments matter? Right, so Paul's referencing the Ten Commandments. It looks like he's, he's kind of paraphrasing a little bit, but it looks like he's referencing Deuteronomy's version of the Ten Commandments. And he says, but I, I thought you said the, we're done with the law. I thought you said that Jesus got rid of all of that. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to think about this. And it's true, Jesus fulfilled the law, but that doesn't mean that everything in the law, speaking of specifically the law of Moses in the first five books of the Bible, but, you know, stretched out to the, the whole Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, it doesn't mean that everything in the law is nullified or that we don't have anything to learn from the Old Testament and its dispensation. The law of Moses was man's guardian until Christ came and fulfilled the law. And now we are under what Paul calls the law of Christ. That phrase is found in Galatians 6 verse 2. Now, the law of Christ, as we learn about it in the New Testament, contains many of the same principles and commands that were found in the law of Moses. Still not okay to murder people. Still not okay to steal from people, right? Uh, but it doesn't contain all of the things from the law of Moses. The ceremonial laws are done. The rituals are gone. The divisions and barriers between God and man are, are no more because Jesus cleared those things out on the cross and he paid what the law demanded. He said, it's finished. We're tearing this veil. A lot of this is going away and I'm instituting a new covenant and the law of Christ is here now. And it does include a lot of overlapping commands, but not everything. And so that means now as New Testament believers on this side of the cross and the resurrection, we can turn to the word of God in the Old Testament and, and recognize that it is also 
inspired and authoritative and inerrant and that we can learn things about Jesus and about ourselves and about our relationships to others. We can see how God does things and how he spoke in the Old Testament time and find all sorts of application, even though you and I as Gentiles are no longer bound captive under the Levitical law. So Paul went through a big, long section talking about how, hey, um, God has broken down the barriers, Jews and Gentiles, this is a mystery. He's brought them together into this new thing, the church. So no, you don't have to follow the Levitical code and Jews don't have to follow the Levitical code either. This is what we're doing now. But that doesn't mean that we uh, just tear out the Old Testament from our Bibles and say, oh, I don't need to read that anymore. That's all gone and done, right? Have you heard anyone use the term red letter Christians? Has, has anybody heard that? Said, hey, I'm a red letter Christian. A couple of you maybe. There is a, uh, there's a heretical group that, that uses that title officially. They have a website and have speakers and things like that. But I've also heard it more widely used uh, as people who just wanna focus on the red letters, what Jesus said in the gospels. And ultimately, the idea is we kind of need to de-emphasize the black letters and we just, we just need the red letters. Now, big red flag, just so you know. Anytime somebody comes along and says, I'd like to take a big pair of scissors to the Bible and I'm gonna be left with things that make me feel the way I wanna feel, right? Uh, Thomas Jefferson famously did this. He has the Jeffersonian Bible, and he's like, you know, the Bible has a lot of good things in it, but we certainly don't need any miracles in there, and we certainly don't need anything about Jesus being God in there, and so it's a very truncated version of the New Testament, right? So we don't want to be the kind of people that are taking a hacksaw to the Word of God. We have it on good authority uh, that the 66 books of the Bible are, are what the Lord wants uh, us to applied to our lives and right onto our hearts. And so saying, well, I'm a red letter Christian. I just wanna to go to the gospels, I'll see the red letters. You know, they didn't come on the manuscripts in black and red letters, right? That's a relatively brand new phenomenon when it comes to church history. But aside from that, it's not how it works. I don't get to pick the parts of the Bible that appeal to me and wouldn't you know it also appeal to secular culture. That's what it ends up always amazingly, amazingly, you, you go to these, you know, these websites or you, you listen to these people talk and wouldn't you know it, it lines up perfectly with what the popular culture says. And we'll get rid of all that stuff that the, in the Bible that the popular culture doesn't like to hear and oh, hey, here you go. It's just all, it's all this stuff that comports exactly with what unbelievers feel good about too. But that's not how it works. For one thing, Jesus said that not even the smallest letter of God's word in the Old Testament will pass away until all things are accomplished. And uh, plenty of the Old Testament is still unfulfilled as we look at uh, the prophetic books specifically, but uh, not all things have been fulfilled. None of that has passed away yet. And Christ was constantly quoting the black letters as authoritative, Right? Jesus was quoting Psalms and quoting Moses and quoting all of these different uh, passages from the Old Testament. 
And here also in Ephesians, we see Paul the Apostle directing our attention back to the Old Testament. These are largely Gentiles. They didn't have Hebrew Bibles. They maybe had learned some things about the Old Testament, but probably not very much about it. And so he was encouraging the Ephesian church and specifically the children. He said, hey, go study and apprehend all the word of God, the Hebrew Bible, and apply it to your life. Listen to what God was saying in these um, other books and, and recognize that it is the authoritative word of God. So now he's spoken to kids. It's pretty straightforward. Obey your parents. This is a good thing, not only for you, not only for your family, but for society at large. Uh, it's righteousness. When you do that, you are working righteousness and you can learn about what it means to be a righteous, godly kid by studying the word of God. And so he's done all of that in three verses and now he turns to dads in verse four. Fathers, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So another interesting language thing is happening here because you know, I'm not a Greek scholar uh, or a Greek student, or I just, I know Greek exists, right? And so, uh, but, but what people who do know what they're talking about will tell you is that Paul used a specific word, meaning both parents, mom and dad, in the earlier verses, but now he specifically is speaking to fathers. That doesn't mean that verse four doesn't have any application to moms, it does, but what we see here again is that in a Christian family, ideally, the husband and father has the greatest responsibility of all the members of the family. It is his duty to lead his family as the greatest servant and to focus his attention on their spiritual provision and their spiritual development. Uh, and so we're kind of going back to the last passage of Ephesians chapter 5 and where Paul is still explaining to husbands and fathers what it means to be a Christian husband and father. Paul says, okay, listen, dads, bring them up. It's not just that dads need to be shouting orders at people like a field commander, you know, being shelled on the beach, right? He says, no, 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 bring them. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a term that indicates togetherness, right? If you bring something, it means that you're going with it. You're Together, you're laying hands on and, and bringing it close. Together, dad and mom and kids are walking toward Jesus, growing in strength, bearing fruit, making progress as a unified group. That's the image that Paul's putting in our minds. Now, as I pointed out last time, we recognize that Paul is speaking about the ideal arrangement. He's talking about philosophically what God desires uh, for a family when, when, when it can happen, right? This doesn't mean that everyone needs to be married. It doesn't mean that everyone has to have kids. It doesn't mean that if you're divorced, you have no place in the church. It doesn't mean any of those things. Why? Because there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so he's talking philosophically about, about the ideal for a Christian family. But of course, in, even in Ephesus, just like in our experience, not everyone had a Christian dad. Not everyone had a Christian mom. Not everyone even had a mom and a dad together. Not everyone had kids. But the Lord here is placing goals before us and bearings to navigate by as far as is possible for us if the Lord calls us into marriage and calls us into parenthood. So if you're here tonight and you're not married, you don't need to think, well, I don't matter because I'm not married. 
Or if you're here tonight and you're a single parent, you don't need to think, well, I failed because I don't have this arrangement. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. The Lord is saying, look, if I've called you into this relationship, if you're going to get married and and you're together with a spouse, this is the way that I want you to arrange it as far as it depends on you. Now, my spouse isn't a believer. Paul has a lot to say about Uh, individuals who are married to an unbeliever in other parts of the New Testament, and lots of these people were. A lot of these people are hearing this stuff about children, and you know what? Their children were dead. These people had almost probably, one out of every two of them, at least, statistically speaking, had buried their children, or all of them had buried one child, right? And so, so don't leave here with any kind of condemnation or any kind of discouragement. Paul's talking about ideal Uh, relationships and and callings that God places. He says, hey, are you a Christian husband? This is the way I want you to be a Christian husband. Are you a Christian wife? Here's how I want you to be a Christian wife. Are you a Christian dad? Here's what you should do. Are you a Christian mom? Mom, here are the bearings that I want you to navigate by. Are you a Christian kid? You've got a spot too in God's unfolding work. Now the phrase here, bring them up, also reveals the how for dads. The term means to nourish someone not just drag them along, right? Uh, you know, it's not like uh, my, my dog, Ellie, I love her so much. So, you know, she's a big dog uh, and she is just a lazy bone. So I, we like to take her on a walk. We don't do it very often because we get about, you know, 100 yards into our walk and then she acts like she's on the trail of tears. She's like the only dog I've ever known. I'm pulling her. You, you know, all the dog trainers and they always tell you, don't let your dog pull you on the lead. You have to come. I'm like, I'm pulling my dog. She doesn't want to come. Uh, the other, a while back I was walking and I was walking past a gas station. I have Ellie and I'm just pulling, pulling. And it's like, I, I'm not walking far, you guys. We're not walking for miles and miles. She's fine. She's just lazy. She's also a puppy still. She's not even two years old. So I'm walking and walking, and the guy is waiting in line at the car wash. And he's kind of sitting there in his car, and I'm kind of walking by her, and he's like, man, your dog looks tired. I'm like, she's one. She, she's one. And he's like, really? I said, yeah. And she, and she just lays down on the grass right there. <laughs> She's not, she's not tired. She's not thirsty. I'm dragging her along, right? I'm bringing her along by dragging her. I'm like, come on, Ellie, come on, come on. Everybody, I'm sure, thinks that like I'm abusing some sad old dog, and that's not what's happening. But that's not how dads are supposed to bring along their family, right? The term here means to nourish. It's a tender term. Paul's telling dads they need to be kind to their kids. Now, listen, that doesn't mean that dads can't be firm and dads can't be direct and that dads can't hold high standards. They absolutely should and must, we'll see, but dads are supposed to be kind to their kids. And that would have been a revolutionary idea to the Roman mind. See, up till now, some of what Paul has been saying would line up with the culture around them because in Rome, yeah, kids were expected to obey, absolutely, particularly the dads. But now Paul says, hey, dads, you're not going to be a Roman dad. You are going to be a Christian dad, and this is the way you're supposed to do it, with kindness. You see, in the Roman Empire, the father was the center of the family universe. I'm sure some of you have heard the term, the paterfamilias, right? He could do whatever he wanted. 
Everyone existed for him and beneath him as far as the family and household structure went. He had absolute authority over his children. One source writes this, if his children angered him, he had the legal right to disown his children, sell them into slavery, or even kill them. That's how serious Roman fatherhood was, right? But now a Christian father is being told that his life should be spent in servant leadership of his family, defined by kindness and grace and dedicated to their development and benefit, not his own primarily. That's revolutionary. Uh, But that's completely different than what the, the family culture of the world around them would have said was what people should do. And so Paul says, dad, you need to nourish your kids. And he gives a don't command alongside it. He says, don't stir up anger in your children. Or maybe your version says, don't provoke your children. There's a lot we could say about what that means, but I like the list that Bible commentator uh, R. Kent Hughes provides. He says, provocation can be done in a number of ways. And here's his list, unreasonableness, fault finding, neglect, inconsistency. Those are four easy, low-hanging fruit that would fall under this provocation idea. These and other abuses of the parental position, specifically the father position, like excessively severe discipline, arbitrariness, unfairness, constant nagging and condemnation, subjecting a child to humiliation, those sorts of things are totally outside of what's acceptable for a Christian parent, particularly fathers. Instead, we're called to gentleness toward our children, not weakness, not inattention, not just, well, I don't want my kid to, you know, I have to be nice to them, and so I just let them do whatever I want. That's not what gentleness means, and I think you guys know that. Not allowing kids to do whatever they want. He says, no, you gotta bring them up in the Lord. Uh, you, You need to show them how to obey, how to walk worthy, all these things, but we're to do it with gentleness, like Jesus is gentle. Nobody's more gentle than Jesus. Patience, like Jesus is patient. Grace, like Jesus is gracious. That's the model, remember, from last passage, husbands and dads, uh, of the way we're supposed to act in our family. It's how Jesus did. But not only was the how a challenge to the Roman culture, the what they were supposed to do would be too. For one thing, Roman girls weren't formally educated. They weren't treated the same as sons. But notice Paul didn't say, bring up your sons in the Lord. He says, bring up your children in the Lord. And so again, God reveals that he values every person equally, whether the culture around them does or not. The Lord challenged these parents to value what he valued and to orient their family life according to his standard, not Rome's standard. Christian culture, particularly in the family, does not align with the secular culture around us. Now, Paul also changes the goal of parenting here. A Roman boy was taught reading and writing and Roman ethics and philosophy and civics, right, and rhetoric, those sorts of things. And and the point was he was groomed in his upbringing to become a great Roman citizen. That was the goal. That was the ideal. That was the focus. But Christians must have a different perspective. We, We can't settle for that human perspective. The goal of Christian parenting is not that kids get the finest education or land the highest paying job or be the best stars on the sports field. Those things might be a part of your kid's life. That's fine. But your goal as a parent is to bring your child to spiritual maturity. Your goal as a parent 
is to introduce your children to the Lord Jesus and teach them his ways and his word and then show them how to walk worthy on their own, teaching them how to know God and love God, how to hear from God, how to follow him, how to navigate a difficult world according to his values and principles. Paul says we accomplish this goal with training and instruction. Training is a term that includes discipline or punishment. It also carries with it images of form, right? And execution and practice and development of skill that you're training for something. It's more than just reading in a book. It's the application of what you're learning and and getting it into your own hands, getting it into your own muscles, those sorts of things. And we we need to recognize that kids aren't going to perfectly execute all the time. You know, adults don't either, but sometimes we parents expect our kids to be able to accomplish something they haven't been trained to do. I can't do things I haven't been trained to do, but it's easy for us to be like, just do it, just just do it. And it's like, okay, but no, I have to train them to develop those muscles and, and use them and understand when to use them. It's our job to help them get there, show them the form, help them practice the mechanics of faith, guide them as they develop the skills of spirituality. The second part is instruction. The term means to place before the mind or to confront. Fathers and mothers, by extension, are to engage with kids intellectually to present the truths of God before their minds and to confront the false teachings of the enemy and to help children navigate through learning how to apprehend God's truth in a world full of lies. And of course, if we wanna teach our kids God's truths, we're gonna have to know God's truths ourselves and then prioritize them. I liked what one commentary said, Uh, It spoke to me, fathers are not to teach personal preferences, but spiritual truths. The goal is not parental authority, but passing on God's authority to children. I love teaching my kids my preferences, and I make them known day by day. But I need to remind myself from the word of God that the goal of parenting is to, to pass on spiritual truths and help these individual kids learn to walk in their own strength with the Lord. Christian parenting demands a lot of attention and effort, demands that we align our perspective with the Lord in contradiction to the secular world. But when a family walks this road together, God's grace flows out in power. And a Christian family is one of the best tools we have for saving society. You wanna help society? Focus on your home. Focus on your marriage relationship, your parent relationship, your, you know, your relationship with your kids. The family is a special vehicle of God's grace and power. And as we've seen, each of us as husbands or wives or fathers or mothers or children, each of us has a part to play. It starts in the heart, believing God and being humble enough to go his way, trusting that it's the only way to get where we wanna go, and then walking in the steps that have been laid out before us, knowing that the Lord will walk with us and empower us Uh, to accomplish all the things that he wants to accomplish in our lives.